If you're new and visiting us this morning, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. We love guests, so we love you, and we'd love to get to know you a bit. And uh, so make sure you come say hi. Uh, we're coming to the end of a wonderful series we've been doing in Exodus. Uh, I don't know what number message this is, but we have another six to go. So we're getting really close to the end. Uh, last week we looked at the priesthood. This week we're into one of the most infamous passages in the whole of the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 14, the golden calf. That's Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I've promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join with me in praying? Lord God, we come again this morning as your people with thanksgiving for your word. And this morning as we come to examine a strong word of warning, a familiar word and yet a foreboding word, I just pray you'd give us softened hearts to hear it, to receive it and to rightly apply it. And we pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, this morning with a bit of a conversation um, and a question for you guys to think about. And the question is this, what's your secret obsession? What's your secret obsession? You know, I thought this would be a good opportunity, um, since I've got the mic, to help you get to know the pastoral team a little bit um, and uh, some of our little secret obsessions that we've got, uh, thought it might be interesting uh, I'll start off with a tame one for myself. Um, I'm kind of a little bit obsessed uh, with, for those that know me, uh, YouTube videos and random trivia. The the way it gets kind of a little bit annoying and irritating is I've got all these kind of interests in just random information. It perks my interest and I remember it. But then other people have to put up with listening to this random trivia that I'm putting upon them that they have no interest in whatsoever at all. Uh, Kind of little closet secret obsession or maybe not so secret anymore. Uh, Patrick Chavez. Uh, For those that know Patrick, there's so many to choose from here, but (laughs) pranking is a secret obsession of our brother. Uh, it could be anything. If he's staring at you, you know, he's sizing you up for how he might uh, perform some sort of prank. Uh, confetti, buckets of water, scaring people. Um, you know, it must be so interesting for the officers opposite us who just often, I'm sure, look through the glass at our office and see a grown man crawling slowly through the offices planning some sort of prank. I often, when I feel something in my periphery, I just comfort myself thinking it's probably just... Patrick creeping up on me, ready to perform a prank. Uh, Dave Taylor, uh, some of you may be aware, uh, NRL Fantasy League. You might not be aware, however, uh, it's obviously a sort of app where you guess the outcome of matches and things with the NRL. Uh, Out of the tens of thousands of people nationwide, uh, Dave has found himself, I believe, in the top 50 of people uh, on this app. Where he finds the time, we don't know. Secret obsessions. What's yours? You know, those are kind of funny examples of little obsessions that people can have, uh, closet obsessions, but it's also kind of possible to have an obsession that's far more serious. An obsession that can even destroy your faith. And for many of us, we know people who we've watched over the years drift kind of slowly away from God due to an obsession. Uh, It's the person who pursues a relationship with an unbeliever and it slowly pulls them away. It's the person whose career becomes their obsession and, 
and they find themselves increasingly absent from the Jesus community and they begin to neglect their relationship with God. It's the person with the health struggle without a seeming expiry date who becomes obsessed with cure and begins to blame God. It's the person who their children increasingly, their success becomes their obsession and the church community becomes increasingly and increasingly peripheral. And it's even sometimes the person for whom a thousand little things begin to distract and pull away ever increasingly slowly over time. You know, in the Bible, these obsessions, they're actually known as idols. Uh, Tim Keller puts it so well. What is an idol? He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. That is an idol. You see, our passage this morning has been given to us by God as a warning against the danger of idols. How do I know that? Well, occasionally as a preacher, Scripture kind of does the work for you and it actually gives you the right intended redemptive effect or application of a passage for you. And in our case, we get it clearly from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, where in referencing our very passage, Paul says this. He says, Now these things took place as an example for us. Why? That we might not desire evil as they, as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, and now quoting verse 6 of our passage, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. According to Scripture itself, that is the take-home message for our passage today. It has been written that we might not desire evil as these people did and that we might not be idolaters as they were. And so I've entitled this message for those that are taking notes, uh, the lesson of the golden calf. And I really have two points for us this morning. Point number one, the great betrayal, and point number two, the greater mercy. But one simple take-home message for us this morning, which comes straight from the Apostle Paul, and that is that we would flee from the great betrayal that is idolatry. Paul wants to encourage us to run from idolatry, and that is what I want to encourage us in this morning. Well, point number one, the great betrayal. You see, today's passage is, it's a really somber one, to be honest. It echoes throughout the scriptures as an example of mankind at their worst. But the reasons for that might not be so uh, immediately obvious to us as we look at it. And my hope for us is that we might slow down and really examine why this is one of the great betrayals in all of scripture. But I want to do more than to help you see how it is a great betrayal. I want you to see yourselves in this scripture as, as well. I want us to see ourselves as we examine this scripture. Well, just by way of context, God had looked upon his people in slavery in Egypt and he'd remembered his promises to them. He'd called Israel to be his treasured possession. He'd offered them a covenant that freely agreed, yes, we want to be in this covenant. Uh, and then what had happened is that Back in chapter 24, he'd confirmed his covenant in blood. After confirming the covenant in blood, 
God then calls Moses back up onto Mount Sinai, which we read again at the, at the back end of chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you flick there to chapter 24, verse 15. It says, after confirming the covenant in, in verse 15 of chapter 24, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered the mountain uh, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses, Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The peak of Mount Sinai is covered in cloud and glory like fire. And Moses ascends to meet with God for 40 days. And he places Aaron and her as leaders in his place. And God reveals these divine plans that have never been seen before in the history of the world. Divine plans for a dwelling place for himself. A beautiful tabernacle symbolizing glory and holiness and the Garden of Eden and mercy. And he designs this beautiful priesthood with Aaron as the high priest and the elaborate gown and clothing that we saw last week. And he sets this covenant in stone, engraving it himself in two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, down below, it's likely been more than 30 days and questions are starting to arise. Why don't you read with me verse 1 of chapter 32. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Imagine the scene of the city below. Two million people stretched out. This elderly man, Moses, begins to trek up the mountain into the cloud and fire. And time passes by. At first one day, and then two days, and then a week, and then two weeks, and then three weeks, and then four weeks. And the people begin to grow a little bit impatient. And they gather together and they approach Aaron. But before we're quick to condemn the Israelites for their foolishness, isn't that the spirit of our age as well? This impatience with God? Uh, 2 Peter 3, 4 says, They, that is scoffers in the last day, will say, Where's the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, do you ever find yourself growing impatient with God? Maybe... Suffering an illness without an expiry date. Wondering, where's God? What's he up to? What's he doing? Maybe struggling with a difficult work situation. And thinking, when's God going to get me out of this? Desiring a relationship. And just time and time again, the door seems to close. Maybe even questioning God's existence. And growing impatient with God. You see, Moses had been this kind of physical reminder of the presence of God with Israel. He was God's representative. He symbolized his presence and power. And he mediated between God and man for them. In chapter 34, we'll see that even Moses' face will glow from the glory of God, symbolic of the glory of God's agreement and his presence with Moses and the people of God. And you see, up to this point, there'd been no recorded absences of more than one day of Moses away from the people of God until this last ascent, and they had grown impatient. Keep reading with me again that verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, 
the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We don't know what's happened to Moses. Did he die up there? Has he fled again like we heard he did in Egypt? Has he forsaken us? More, without Moses, we can't even see this God. Make us some idols that we can see. What use is a God that we can't see? You see, after 400 years in pagan Egypt, a land full of idols, these people were still deeply affected by their culture. But notice the irony of who they're speaking to. These people are speaking to Aaron. Aaron is completely unaware of what is going on at the top of the mountain. You see, God has purposed him to be a high priest. He has been designing his glorious robes. The contrast could not be any more stark. God had planned Aaron as a high priest who will act in the meantime as this people's pagan priest. There's no evidence of any quarreling or dispute from Aaron as their requests are made known. He actions an immediate plan. Uh, William Propp, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, Aaron, not knowing that he is destined for the supreme priesthood, instead commits the supreme crime. Read with me verse 2 through to 4. So Aaron said, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron collects all this jewelry together, and we're not told how, but possibly melts it all down, and he sculpts it into a golden calf. Now, when we hear the word calf, we're thinking of like a cute little baby cow or something like that. But the word in Hebrew, egel, actually means a young bull in its prime. So think uh, probably a fully grown bull up to three years of age. And this is highly symbolic. You see, the Israelites lived in this pagan, pluralistic culture. And in Israel's day, religion universally worshipped physical gods. They struggled to believe in what they couldn't see. And in different locations, they kind of had their own gods. And to worship a god, you'd create an idol in the god's image and the god would inhabit the idol. And then you would make offerings to please the god by making offerings to the idol and prayers in the presence of the idol. A bull at this time was highly significant because it symbolized divine strength and energy and fertility and even leadership. And the Israelites are saying... That's the sort of God we want. We want this kind of God to be present with our people. And this would have taken a significant amount of work. This wasn't an accident. This would have been days of labor. And Aaron presents his masterpiece to the people, and they love it. Read with me again the end of verse 4. The people of Israel said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron thinks, 
oh, clearly I've nailed it here. These people are loving it, what I've put together. I know what we need. We need a little worship service now to toast it off. And so we read in verses 5 through to 6, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Aaron organizes a massive party to celebrate their new Yahweh idol. Notice where you've seen this ceremony before. Aaron replicates the covenant sealing that had just happened before in chapter 24. And he builds an altar right in front of the idol. And this is important. It's right in front of the idol so that the idol can see it. As they feast and as they offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But this worship service, it's not one that pleases God. It's an abomination. It's a massive betrayal. It's so bad that this betrayal will echo throughout the ages. But why? You might be sitting there and thinking, what's so bad about it? A little bit of a ball and a worship service, misinformed, but still a good heart, right? Well, not at all. And there are really two main reasons why this is so bad. The first reason is that this idol slanders the name of God. You see, God, according to the Bible, is a spiritual being and invisible. Uh, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he says this. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. God is a spiritual being. He's invisible. He can't be represented by a physical statue. More than that, God is limitless in power and strength and could never be contained in a statue. More than that, God is alive and he hears and he speaks. He's not deaf and dumb like a a block of wood or gold. More than that, God is far above all created things. Psalm 113 verse 5 says, Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? You see, God is so glorious that an idol, an image, could never appropriately represent his character. Idols lie about his character and his power. They limit his glory and they slander him. I mean, have you ever been misrepresented before? Maybe at the workplace or by a friend. How much does that hurt when someone misrepresents you and says something untrue of you? How much more? For the living God. Secondly, not just that the idol slanders his name and misrepresents him, but this idol broke his covenant. You know, Israel just entered into this agreement with God, a covenant. He'd laid out ten commands, ten conditions. They'd pledged their obedience. They'd sealed it with blood. And within a few weeks, they'd turned their back completely on him. God had chosen this people out of all the nations to be his special treasures. He had shepherded them. He had led them out of Egypt. He had rescued them. They would entered into an exclusive relationship that had just been sealed. And now they're comparing him to a bull. And they're performing a cheap rip-off ceremony to seal it all over again. They've broken straight away commands one, two, and three. Uh, In Exodus 20, in the uh, 
Ten Commandments, it says the following, and it almost looks like a checklist of condemnation. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is that in the earth below or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, in visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's like tick, 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 broken, broken, broken. This is brazen adultery. One scholar says it's akin to committing adultery on your honeymoon. This is devastating and heartbreaking for the living God. This is one of the greatest betrayals in the whole of the Bible. But here's the question I want us to think about this morning. How did they get here? How did they so quickly throw it all away. Well, according to the writer of Psalm 106, they simply forgot God and exchanged the unseen for the seen. He says in 106 verse 19, they made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. See, the God of the Bible is different from the false gods of Egypt. He cannot be seen, and he inhabits every place. You see, altars in the house of Yahweh were obscured by curtains. And that's significant, because it took faith to believe that the invisible God could nonetheless see the offering. The altar of the golden bull was right in front, so it could be seen. You see, Israel did what all people have been tempted to do throughout the ages when they lose sight of the living God. They exchanged the creator for the created. They exchanged the unseen for the seen. See, they lost sight of Moses, their leader, and they so quickly succumbed to culture creating something visible instead to worship. And Moses' absence, really, it just reveals their immaturity. They would not truly come to know this living God. They'd experienced salvation, but they desperately needed sanctification. You see, this passage, it's not just a relic of history. According to Paul, it was written down as a warning for us as well, specifically that we might flee from idolatry. You see, more than three and a half thousand years have passed since this passage, and yet some things have not changed at all. You know, we live in this post Christian, post enlightenment, materialistic, skeptical world. Our culture, more than ever, says seeing is believing. Show me the evidence, give me the proof. If God is real, reveal Himself to me. But on my terms, That is, give me some sort of physical sign. Culture says, trust what you can see. Culture says, what is real is just the physical stuff, period. 
We're all just atoms in a universe that will eventually end. And the fruit of this is we don't live day to day with an awareness of the actual spiritual world that we live in. You know, we have a new leader greater than Moses. Our Lord Jesus has ascended higher than Mount Sinai. He's ascended to the right hand of God himself. And in the same way, you could almost reread verse 1 as saying, when God's people saw that Jesus had been delayed on high. You know, we might not create a golden ball, but we can create idols of the heart. The temptation is to put our trust, to put our hope in the physical, what we can see, whether that be relationships or dollars in the account or a career or popularity or family or holidays. The list goes on. And we turn them into idols, objects of our devotion on the thrones of our hearts. And we put our trust in the things that we can see and we live as though God doesn't exist. I just wanted us to just pause just for a moment this morning and just just look around you. Like just, I mean, we're in this beautiful hall here at Barker College. And just look at what you can see. There's people here gathered together in this room with the chairs and the carpet. You know, friends, that's not all there is here right now. What we can see is not all that is real. There's realities and truths about this moment right now that we cannot see. That is what is truly real. You know, the great tragedy of Aaron was that he could only see what was before him. He couldn't see the glorious calling that God had given him, nor could Israel. Do you realize that the Lord Jesus has ascended and has drawn for you Plans of a glorious calling even greater than Aaron's. Not as a high priest, something even greater. John 1.12, as a child of the living God himself. You know, Aaron was instructed in how to safely enter into God's house. John 14.2, Jesus says he's preparing you a room to live there. That is what is real. The living God present through the power of the Holy Spirit in this room right now. The risen Lord Jesus ascended on high at the Father's right hand, waiting for the moment in which he'll reveal himself to the world in glory. That is what is real. 1 Peter 1, 8, 9 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, do you believe it? Here's a question for you to ponder. Where are you being tempted to put your confidence in what is seen? See, the Israelites' great betrayal 
was that they exchanged the living God for what could be seen. A golden calf. Not just point one, the great betrayal. Point two, friends, the greater mercy. You know, as bleak as things might appear in this passage, we now turn to examine the wonderful beauty and greater mercy of the living God. Why don't you turn with me to verse 7 of our passage. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You know, Moses hasn't seen what's been taking place at the foot of the mountain, but Yahweh, who sees all things, informs him. And notice how God immediately distances himself from Israel. Your people, Moses, who you brought out of the land of Egypt. This isn't petty bickering from God. God is saying, these people are rejecting me as their God. So they're your people. He says, they've corrupted themselves. The root word basically means to destroy. They've damaged themselves. You see, God's concern here is that sin is not just against God and against his glory, but it's against ourselves as well. It's, it's damaging to ourselves. And the next verses really grant us insight into how their idolatry affected the very heart of God himself. Read with me verse 9. It says the following. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. God says, I know this people and they're stiff-necked. They're stubborn. They're resistant to change. It's like a beast of burden, like an ox that is resistant to being steered by its master and therefore useless. God says, leave me alone and I will completely Wipe them out and start again with you, Moses. I'll make you Abraham 2.0. I will restart with you as my new Abraham, Moses. It's startling. And it's startling because God does not make flippant statements. He intended to do this. Psalm 106 verse 23 says this. It says, therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? Have you ever considered how the betrayal that is idolatry grieves the heart of God? He describes its effects as like burning anger. His wrath against this betrayal is so severe, he threatens complete annihilation of his people. See, God doesn't owe anything to anyone. He's God. This is completely his right. We're like clay in the hands of a potter, completely entitled to, at any moment, toss it into the bin. 
It's his clay. He's the potter. And this is no less true of God today as this is the God who never changes. He is always the same in his nature. You know, if we're honest, we can be quite flippant in regards to idols in our own lives. You can find yourself kind of fixated on your career or on my career, for instance, and you know it's not quite right, but you think, oh, well, you know, it's just where I'm at at this time, and you might know that I'm not really generously giving, but I think, you know, it's just for a season, a passing period of time, or might know that I'm looking for a spouse and kind of compromising on my standards and starting to pursue people that, you know, maybe anomaly even just a Christian or maybe not even Christians at all and openly hostile, but I think, yeah, it's just one area of my life, you know, I still believe in Jesus and all that sort of thing. You might ever increasingly be putting your kids at the center of your life or find yourself constantly daydreaming about holidays and you just kind of think, oh, well, you know, it's probably not right, but that's just the way things are for now. God's response to the golden bull is a reminder of the serious nature of idolatry. But look at the hint of mercy contained already in the words of God. Turn with me again to that verse 10. It says this, Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. Now, therefore, let me alone, that I might consume them. Let me alone, that I might, implies, if you don't let me alone, I won't. God is hinting at the truth that if Moses will but intercede for his people, he will turn away from his burning anger. And this is exactly what Moses does. He intercedes for all of Israel. Moses wisely takes up the invitation from God to pray and turns down the offer to be Abraham 2.0. And his prayer really has... Three simple parts. He prays and pleads that God will remember that he saved his people by his power. That, that he'll not allow the Egyptians to slander his name by falsely accusing God of doing wicked to them in the hill country. That he pleads with God that he'll remember his promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob or Israel. And the Lord, according to his great mercy, hears this one man's prayer and relents. Had Moses not prayed, the Lord would have wiped them out. But based on one man's intercession, he answers his prayer. You see, the Israelites' great betrayal was what is that they exchanged the living God for what could be seen, a golden calf. But despite their great betrayal, the response of the Lord to Moses' prayer shows his even greater mercy. Well, that may be true, but the question I want us to think about is, but how do you actually apply this message, this passage, and actually flee from idols? We've seen the abundant mercy of the living God, but how do you actually do this? We've seen that there's so many idols that can so quickly grip our hearts. How do you actually flee from them, run from them? 
You know, one approach is basically that you just try really hard. You try to serve more at church. You try to attend more. You try to give more. You try to read more. But the problem is that idols are too invasive. They're, they're in the heart. It's been said by John Calvin that the, the heart is an idol factory. It's impossible just by effort alone to get rid of them. The real answer is to be found in the reason God could answer Moses' prayer to relent. You see, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed saw the burning wrath of God and also prayed. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, it says, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, for the second time it says, He went away and prayed, My Father, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See, the Lord Jesus saw the burning wrath of God against sinful men and pleaded for God to relent. He fell on his face and he prayed. But the Father did not relent. And his wrath consumed him. He would be betrayed by his closest friends and taken to the cross. He would cry in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And silence would be his answer. See, God could answer Moses' prayer to relent because he had planned to crush his son. Behold, friends, the greater mercy of God. The spectacular mercy of God that he would crush his one and only son that he might answer the prayer of this one man Moses and relent from crushing his people. And behold, friends, the key to fleeing from idolatry. You see, the real cause for Israel's idolatry is that they'd lost sight of the amazing beauty and love of God. And that exchanged him for something phony like a golden ball. And the real cause for our idolatry is the same. It's that we've replaced God with other lesser things. But when we behold the beauty of God displayed in Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for us, how could we possibly want anything else? How could we possibly want more to have a nice career or a sweet relationship or a holiday or money in the pocket. It's nothing compared to the beauty of Jesus. The self-sacrifice of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ exposes all other idols as phony, as golden balls. To see Jesus is to want nothing more but more of him. Well, then how do you actually apply this passage and flee from idols? You can't do it by trying harder. What you need is the expulsive power of a greater love. It's to look to Christ. It's to camp out at the foot of the cross and to behold his beauty. You know, there might be a specific area of struggle that you're really wrestling with right now. You might want to ask someone to disciple you. 
You might want to pluck up the courage to ask someone you respect who's following Christ, who's maybe a season ahead of you, to, to see if they would go through a book with you. Um, there's some excellent books out there that can help you to live this way, to live at the foot of the cross, like Gospel Fluency by Jeff Van Estelt or Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. But you can't do this by just trying harder. The only way is by beholding the Lord Jesus and all his beauty. You know, Tim Keller has put it so well uh, with an excellent uh, illustration he uses. And it's this, it's, imagine that you had a loved one who you treasured so much. Maybe it's a spouse or a parent or something like that. And imagine someone murdered them by shooting them with an arrow. Imagine sometime after you'd mourned their death and their funeral, someone came to you and presented you with that arrow and said, hey, here's the arrow that killed your loved one. I thought maybe you'd want to keep it on you and carry it around with you as a keepsake. What would you say? You'd say, get that thing away from me. I want nothing to do with it. And the same is true of us and the Lord Jesus. When we come to see that these are the things that nailed him to the cross, we want nothing to do with the nails. We say, Get those things away from me and let me only see him. See, the great betrayal was that Israel exchanged the living God for what could be seen, a golden calf. The greater mercy of God is seen not only in the way he answers Moses' prayer, but in the way that is made possible by crushing his beloved son. Friends, would we flee from the great betrayal that is idolatry. Would you pray with me? Well, Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for your mercy and compassion. To think that you, the eternal Son, living on high in perfect unity with your Father through the Holy Spirit, would humble yourself to come And be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be betrayed, to be spat upon, to be murdered. To bear the wrath for all our sins in your body on that tree. And all of it for us. Lord, you are glorious in your mercy and compassion. You are the visible expression of the invisible God. And you are glorious and we love you. Lord Jesus, we're sorry for treasuring other things of this world more than you. And Lord, as your people, we ask, give us more of you. More and more of you. Each and every day. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.